Hello and welcome to this next episode of the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. In this episode, I will be looking at the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, the final part, the final quarter of this. So if you're just joining us, I urge you to go back and check out my thoughts on the first three parts. I actually think most of the core thematic issues I want to focus on uh, as part of this overall podcast series are kind of explored in the first three parts, especially the the Anglo-American themes, the themes of race, the themes of, of cultural conflict, some of the historical themes, they're there. There's a lot of interesting, I think, allegories and, and, and mirror images of, of themes Lovecraft is exploring in his horrors, the, the horror novels and stories set on Earth. Um, and that's what gives, I think, Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadat a certain level of interest beyond the way most people maybe approach it, which is as a very interesting fantasy story, uh, a kind of a culmination of all these dreamland tales, which, which many, of course, m- many people will love, and, and rightfully so. They're uh, quite fascinating. Looks at, uh, at they're, they're a really good window into his cosmic horror ideas, I, I think. Um, so we're getting to the climax of this story uh carter has gone on various adventures in the first three quarters of the story gone to the moon gone to the underworld met the ghouls fought a couple battles uh first with the cats later on with the ghouls against the moon beasts saved a couple uh some ghouls from capture by the by these moon beasts uh he's gone through many different cities on this way to to Kadath, and now he's very close to his his goal. He was led by the slant-eyed merchant, kind of a insidious character who seems to work for some evil force that's trying to uh, capture um, Randolph Carter. He escapes from him, but gets into the underworld and 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 runs back up to the, with the ghouls. Uses the ghouls to. Uh, lodge a uh, attack on the moon beast. So now he's kind of back on the surface, close to his destination, with an army. So that's where we'll start. So the captured ghouls, the ones they save, says, "Okay, you saved me from these moon beasts." And of course, they have their slaves, the men from from Lang, the people who work the black galleys, the same people who originally captured Randolph Carter way back um, in early part of the story, the ones who brought him to the moon. Um, so they're planning kind of to carry on this assault by attacking this rock, this uh, this kind of fort or a little village maintain that that has the moon beast living on them. Uh, now we actually came across this a couple of times in the story already. Once he kind of sailed by it on the way to this other town, uh, he heard about it. Uh, he saw it in the on the frescoes in a monastery uh, in in Lung. And now he's going to uh, go with this army of ghouls and nightgaunts to uh, to do this. Now it's kind of there's a little bit of humor I think here and how the nightgaunts don't want to fly over water, so Carter has to convince them to to uh, kind of bold up, get bold for this attack, but also teaches them to kind of use the oars so they can be on the galleys. So. Anyways, they he implements so once again Carter's able to play general. They engage in the surprise attack on the on the moon beasts. Um, you know, Pikmin sends these ghouls into battle. It's kind of another 
uh, fairly exciting moment in the story. Um, so now the night gods kind of perform all this all the heavy lifting of this battle, it seems. But then the night gods leave and, and return to their homes. Uh, and the ghouls go to the rock. So kind of the first section of this final part of the story is this attack on the rock, which is the, the final big battle, I guess, of the... Well, no, it's not. There, there's kind of an aftermath to this. But the, the, this rock is where the final big conflicts uh, between the different factions in the Dreamlands take place. Uh, as I talked about last time, I think there's a lot of pondering by Lovecraft here on just the... the foundation of society as being one of war uh, between different races and the dreamlands allow him to kind of explore that you know by creating all these different races and people the zoogs and the cats and the moon beasts and these quasi-humans who are being enslaved you know the ghouls the gag what's it they called the gugs all these different weird uh, creatures the ghasts some of these things don't show up again in the story but they just appear briefly as different sort of factions and groups in the Dreamlands, different racial groups. So the next kind of section is this aftermath of the battle, which is basically they, they have this whole like village, this, this camp that they get to ex, you know, exploit. Uh, they find all the... They, do, they tour, tour the rock, they find their homes or villages of the moon beasts and the different uh, men who live there, and they have all the spoils. Like one of which is moon wine. If we remember the moon wine was this kind of really nasty alcohol that the Zoogs produced and what they drank, and they give some to Randolph Carter, and Randolph Carter used that to kind of liquor up people he was trying to get help from. Um, it's not a good thing. You know, Lovecraft was a teetotaler, so he creates kind of this noxious alcohol. In fact, I think he warns the, the ghouls not to drink this stuff. They also find all these rubies, and the ghouls try to eat the rubies, and they can't, and Carter's don't want them because they were mined by these these creeps. So, um, there's other spoils of battle, but it's not like anyone's getting rich off this, it seems. Now, as they're kind of enjoying their victory, a galley arrives to retake the rock. And um, there's multiple landings. Again, Pick, uh, Pikmin and Carter play general, and they get to plan their defense, and, and they send the ghouls to different places to battle off. There's a little moment that's a little kind of mini battle of Thermopylae where they're on this narrow ledge and the ghouls are able to fight off the, these corsairs who have arrived to retake the rock. Um, so that's kind of the next part of the, the story. Um, the next little uh, adventure Carter has is the Battle of the Rock, right? And the ghouls divide into these three different parts. And it's, a, it's another kind of exciting battle. There's a, there's a lot of... Uh, fun i think in the last section of the story with you got these battles and later on we're going to see this flight to uh to kadath to the palace of of the gods but this is a this is a really fun battle um and again they call the night gaunts for for help to eventually escape the the island so then this leads us to the plan to get to unknown kadath the voyage to Gadath. And now Carter is able to enlist the help of the Night Gaunts once again for this this quest. Kind of payback for, um, you know, helping the ghouls. But the Night Gaunts have a broader, have, have a deeper loyalty here. I think originally Carter thought that like these guys work for the bad guys. These guys work for like Azatoth or another Ototep. Remember, he was originally taken to the underground, right? And... 
that may have been the decision of the Nodens, right? If you go back to like the very first part of this series on Unknown Kadath, in the very first part, he's no, this is in the second part when he's climbing the Nigranic mountain to see the face of the gods. He's taken down by the Nikons, and he thought at the time they must be working for the bad guys, but actually they're working for the Nodens, right? And the, and the Nodens were a group that we actually met in Strange High House on the, in the Mist, which was also written around the same period of time. So Pikmin's model, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, and Strange High House on the Mist, all written within a few months of each other. So there's a lot of overlap between these. And here we see the Nodens playing a bigger role. And I think there's a few mentions of this, but um, Carter actually had learned by this point that the Nikons are not bad. They're just a little scary and weird looking, I guess. But they're they're on the side of the Nodens against the, these other gods. So um, Carter's able to convince them to... Convince the Nikons to get him to Kadath. Him and he goes with some ghouls too. So he's got like a posse of ghouls go with him. And that's it. So they join it to Kadath. And then we get this wonderful flight of the Nikons, uh, which goes on for like six or seven pages where they're flying through the sky and we see the stars and we see all a lot of the scenery and the imagery. Um, great stuff here if you're into that. Um, so if you're into seeing Lovecraft's descriptiveness of. Um, of this world he's created. Let me give you an example of it. Quote, Carter did not lose consciousness or even scream aloud, for he was an old dreamer, but he looked behind him in horror and shuddered when he saw that there were other monstrous heads silhouetted above the level of the peaks, bobbing along stealthily one after the first one. And straight in the rear were three of the mighty mountain shapes seen full against the southern skies, tiptoeing wolf-like and lumbering, their tall mitrons nodding thousands of feet in the air. The carved mountains then had not stayed squatting in that rigid semicircle north of Ingranach with right hands uplifted. They had duties to perform and were not remiss, but it was horrifying that they never spoke and never even made a sound in walking. Meanwhile, the ghoul that was Pikmin had gibbered in order to the night gaunts, and the whole army soared higher into the air. Up towards the stars, the grotesque calm shot till nothing stood out any longer against the sky, neither the great granite ridge that was still, nor the carven and metered mountains that walked. All was blackness beneath as the fluttering legion surged northward amidst rushing winds and invisible laughter in the ether, and never a shantak or less mentionable entity rose from the haunted wastes to pursue them. The further they went, the faster they flew, till soon their dizzying speed spread or seemed to pass that of a rifle ball and approach that of a planet in its orbit. Carter wondered how, with such speed, the earth could still stretch beneath them, but knew that in the land of dreams, dimensions had strange properties. End quote. So this is really kind of nice imagery we get here throughout this this um, this flight of this all these night gaunts with these ghouls riding their backs and and, and Carter as well uh, on their way to to finally reach his destination of Kadath. It's exciting moments, and he finally does arrive in Kadath. So they they arrive in this place and. Well, he writes that's the throne room of the gods, right? It's, it's not the sunset city that he dreamed of initially. That's kind of the first realization. He um, kind of feels this sense of failure. If he doesn't see the gods, he actually enters the throne room and is empty. So he doesn't see the gods. He doesn't even see his sunset city. You got to go all the way back to like the first page of the story to think back to what he was, what he dreamed of. Remember, he dreamed three times of the sunset city. Um, 
and three times he was snatched away, right? Described as, quote, all golden and lovely, it blazed in the sunset with walls, temples, colonnades, and arch bridges of vein marble, silver basin fountains of pris prismatic spray and broad squares and perfume gardens, blah, blah, blah. So it's all, this is what he's after, but it's not quite what he finds here. Um, and But he does find this throne room of the gods and he enters it, but there's no gods there. So there's this intense kind of sense of failure um, at at not finding what he's he's hoped to find. Um, for instance, Lovecraft writes, um, and with his hideous escort, he had half hoped to defy even the outer gods, if need be, knowing as he did that the ghouls have no master and the night gaunts own not Nairlo Otap, but the archaic nodes for their lord. But now that he saw the supernal Kadath in its cold waste is indeed girt with dark wonders and nameless sentinels, and that the outer gods are of a surer vigilance in guarding the mild, feeble gods of earth. Void as they are of lordship over ghouls and night gaunts, the mindless, shapeless blasphemies of outer space can yet control them when they must. So that it was not in a state as free and potent master of dreamers that Randolph Carter came into the great one's throne room with the ghouls, swept in, herded by nightmare tempests from the stars and dodged by unseen horrors on the northern wastes, all that army floated captive and helpless in the lurid right, light, dropping numbly to the onyx floor, when the same voiceless order of the winds of fright dissolved. Well, some dense prose there, but this is, uh, you know, the main point here is that the gods are not there, right? And he has not found them. Um, quote, Carter had come to unknown Kadath in the cold waste, but he had not found the gods. Yet still the lurid light glowed in that one tower room whose size was so little less than that of all outdoors. So maybe a little bit of hope, but you know, all these gods are absent. The ones that he expected to see. Um, then we get the procession, the procession of, of the Pharaoh. Now the Pharaoh obviously is Nairala Otep. That's obvious, but, um, but we get this, this procession as he arrives. First there's this music and this music causes his companions to vanish. So he's alone. Um, then there's a, a uh, the procession continues on, the music continues, this fanfare, and in comes this pharaoh, this guy dressed as a pharaoh. And he begins to talk to Randolph Carter. So much of the rest of the novel, much of the rest of the story is this conversation that he, he has. So, um, so what does he say? Well, first he sort of praises Randolph Carter. There's a lot of praising of Randolph Carter here. For instance, he starts out by saying, like, you have done what others could not. He actually mentions Barzai, who tries to see the outer gods and, and fail. He mentions another guy, Zengit of Aphorat. Quote, Zengit of Aphorat sought to reach unknown Kadath in the cold waste, and now his skull, and his skull is now set in a ring in the little finger of one whom I need not name. But you, Randolph Carter, have braved all things of Earth's dreamlands, and burn still with the flame of quest. You came not as one curious, but as one seeking his due, nor have you failed even in reverence towards the mild gods of earth. Yet have these gods kept you from the marvelous sunset city of your dreams. So there's also the planting of this seed that these other gods are to blame for your not seeing the sunset city. So he says, why is this? Well, um, these gods have sort of fallen. These gods have sort of failed in their job and they've kind of, gone into this sunset uh, sunset city of yours they've taken it over 
they were drawn in by Carter. So Carter, by sort of creating the Sunset City, has created this temptation for the gods. So his imagination, Carter's imagination, is tempting the gods themselves, according to the speaker, according to this pharaoh. Only Carter can bring the gods back, he's told. So he says, you got to go back to this. Now, what is this Sunset City? Well, he says, it's... It's New England of your childhood. Now we are on, you know, we're of course instantly reminded of Caranus, Caranus who sacrifices everything to go to the Dreamlands, set himself as a king, a king, sets himself up in a kingdom, in the, in Salaface, dies in the real world, dies in the waking world, I should say, and then once he gets there, he just longs for his childhood, Cornwall childhood. Remember this great moment, something I emphasized a lot in the last episode. How Caranus and Carter, you know, interact, and and Caranus says like, you know, we are, you know, he kind of longs for this Anglo connection, which he sees in a New Englander, and he also warns him, you're not going to find what you want in Kadath. You're going to be like me. You're going to just long for the good old days of your childhood, right? So this comes back, this conversation comes back here, as he says. You know, your Sunset City is actually the home of your of your youth, kind of an aggregate of of New England. And he gives this description very similar to kind of what we've seen before in Caranus's description of of New England. Quote, for know you that your golden marble city of wonder is only the sum of what you have seen and loved in youth. It is the glory of Boston's hillside roofs and western windows aflame with sunset. It's the fragrant flower common and the great dome on the hill and the tangled of gables and chimneys in the violent valleys where the many bridged Charles flows drowsily. These things you saw, Randolph Carter, when your nurse first wheeled you out in springtime, and they will be the last thing you will see with eyes of memory and with love. And there's the ancient Salem with its brooding years and spectral marbleheads scaling its rocky precipices into past centuries. And the glory of Salem's towers and spires seen afar from Marblehead's pastures across the harbor against the setting sun. There's Providence, quaint and lordly, on its seven hills over the two harbor, where terraces of green leading up to steeples and citadels of living antiquity, and Newport climbing wraith-like from its dreaming breakwater. Arkham is there, with its moss-grown gamble roofs and rocky rolling meadows behind it, and the antediluvian Kingsport, hoary with stacked chimneys and deserted keys, and overhanging gables, and the marvel of high cliffs in a milky, misted ocean with trolling buoys beyond. Cool vales in Concord, cobble lanes in Portsmouth, twilight bends of rustic New England roads where the giant elms half-hide white farmhouse walls and creeping wellsprings, Gloucester's salt wharfs and Truno's windy willows, vistas of distant steeple towns and hills beyond hills along the North Shore. And he goes on uh, a little bit with this, but this is his home. This is his Sunset City, it's just the aggregate of all the things he remembers from New England's past. It's really wonderful. It's uh, it's kind of it really is the opposite of the Silver Key because the Silver Key he kind of vanishes away from this world, right? Kind of escaping to the dreamlands of his of his youth. And in a way, you kind of get to the same place maybe uh, in this kind of longing for youth, but. Carter here will escape this trap so, so in, in a way, but um, I guess they're kind of the thematically parallel, I guess, but even if they, and they kind of end in different ways. So the, the, the Pharaoh says to him, 
Like you have to go back. You have to restore the gods to to their proper place. You're the one who can do this. And he gives him a shantak to, to be as a mount. And he says, you're going to go and do this. And as a reward, you'll gain your sunset city. Right. But you have to speak to the great ones. Only you can do it. You're the only one who can do it. And you will you'll gain this. And then at the end, he reveals himself to be Nyarlathotep, the crawling chaos. And he actually says, I warn you, hopefully you'll never see me again in one of my new, my thousands of other forms. Of course, he has many different forms. One of the most famous of which is the Pharaoh. This is how he first appears to us when we read that story, Nyarlathotep, in the, you know, written back in like 1921 or so. This is only five years later, if you think about it. It's actually striking how short Lovecraft's writing career was. So many of his great stories came in just a, a small window of time. So that's the, the conversation he has with the gods. And then he rides the Shantak. You know, he's always writing things in this novel, writing nightgaunts or Shantaks or Onyx or Zebras or, you know, these cannons that shoot the cats to the moon. He, he rides one of those back to, he somehow rides with the cats back to Earth. Uh, galleys to the moon. He's always riding and flying with something. A lot of flying in this, this, this novel. A lot of port towns. A lot of seaside port towns and taverns. And when he's not there, he's like flying somewhere. Um, so he's riding the Shantak. Now, this was all a trick. Uh, in fact, he's being led to, to Asatov. He realizes this at some point. Um, Quote, for madness and the voids, wild vengeances are Nyarlathotep's only gifts to the presumptuous and frantic, through the, though the rider strove to turn his disgusting steed, that leering, tittering Shantek, coursed on impetuously and relentless, flapping its great slippery wings in malignant joy, and headed for those unhallowed pits where there are no dreams reach. The last amorphous blight of nethermost confusion where bubbles and blasphemes at infinity center the mindless demon sultan Azatoth whose name no lip dare speak aloud, end quote. Now, I want us to remember that, that little short story, The Fragment, right, Azatoth, that doesn't mention Azatoth at all. It's, it's kind of sometimes seen as maybe the first effort at this story, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadat. Of course, it originally was named Azatoth, right? That would have been the name of that story had he finished it. Um, this could have been named the same thing, right? And, you know... Maybe it gives away too much, I guess, at the end, where the climax is going. It's just this one moment, though, where he is approaching him. And, you know, he's going to be driven mad or destroyed. And it's going to be bad. And the gods will be stuck in the Sunset City forever. Um, but he realizes that he can return to the waking world, his waking world of Boston, simply by waking up. So he jumps off the Shantak. Uh, and as he's falling, he manages to, to wake up. And then the final paragraphs of Dream Quest Unknown Kadath are various reflections from different points of view of all this. Um, so, quote, stars started swelled to dawns and dawns burst into foundations of gold, carmine, and purple, and still the dreamer fell. Cries rent the ether as ribbons of light beat back the fiends from outside. And hoary nodens raised a howl of triumph when Nyarlathotep closed it on his quarry, stopped baffled by the glare that seared his formless hunting horrors to gray dust. Randolph Carter had indeed descended at last the wide memorial flights to his marvelous city, for he was come again to the fair New England world that had wrought him. Essentially, he woke up, right? So to the organ chords of morning's myriad whistles and dawn's blaze thrown dazzling through the purple panes of the great gold dome of the statehouse on the hill, Randolph Carter 
leaped shoutingly awake within his Boston room. Birds sang in hidden gardens, and the perfumes of trestled vines came wistfully from arbors his grandfather had reared. Beauty and light glowed from classic mantle and carven cornice, and walls grotesquely figured, while sleek black cat rose yawning from her side, sleep that his master's start and shriek had disturbed. disturbed. And vast infinities away, past the gate of deeper slumber, and the enchanted wood, and the garden lands, and the Serenian sea, and the twist-light reaches of Ignorak, the crawling chaos Narlotep, strode brooding on the onyx castle atop unknown Kadath in the cold waste, and taunted insolently the mild gods of earth, whom he had snatched abruptly from their scented revels in the marvelous Sunset City. So it ends his waking up in Boston and the victory of the Nodens and the defeat of the Crawling Chaos. So that's the dream quest of the Unknown Kadath. Um, what to say about this overall? Like, you know, like the contrast with the Silver Key, you know, waking, this desire for childhood, all that theme we see again. That's not as interesting for me as just the overall geography the history, the, the nature of the dream lens themselves, right? It, it's kind of wild. Like, I would even want to go to this world. That's what I keep thinking. You know, everyone's at war with other, each other. Everyone's eating each other. There's all these strange monsters, all these gods that if you look at, you go mad. It's, it's a weird place to be. Um, but it's also an odd reflection of, of, 18th century Atlant of the 18th century Atlantic. And I think it's striking that the very next story he writes the case of Charles Dexter Ward is also all about 18th century Atlantic. It, it's uh, it's an Arkham or the Providence story, but it, it's kind of in the Arkham cycle. And it's all about the 18th century Atlantic. And here you got this maritime society, right? Everyone's connected by trade routes. You have this racial diversity reflected in all these different people, right? The men from Lang with their curly horns hidden by their by their clothing and their odd faces. You got slavery that the men from Langar are quasi-enslaved to the moon beasts. You have, um, you have these different kingdoms that are competing, all these different like racial groups. Uh, it's, you know, and it's, I think it really works for me as, as kind of a, a metaphor for our world in a, in a way beyond kind of the more mystical stuff with the gods and all that. I think just the geography, the descriptions, the, the nature of the dreamlands is what fascinates me so much about this story now that I've come back to it a few times. It is, I mean, it's, I guess, let me, as many people have noticed, it is a first draft. It's very episodic, right? Altogether, I, I counted out 35 different little things that happen, like little sub-quests side, side, sub that he goes on. Uh, all the way through the uh, the story. In fact, that's how I broke up this these episodes. There's, I found 35 of them, so I broke them up into to, um, essentially nine each. Just one short from a perfect uh, symmetry there. Now, obviously, this is an immense work of imagination that not only connects many of his earlier stories together in interesting ways, but creates... A whole kind of realized world here um, that he could have done more with. He he didn't really do anything else with this. I think there's the 
There's another, there's a Silver Key sequel that was one of his revisions he wrote that was someone else. But he doesn't really come back directly to the Dreamlands. He comes, you know, we see references to Lung and we, we have, you know, kind of gates and we got, you know, some kind of windows into this other world. We've got certainly these gods come back in various ways, but we never really get to go back and visit the Dreamlands directly. And, and that's, that's kind of a sad thing. Um, at least not in Lovecraft's pen. So, what to, what to do now? Well, I guess it's the case of Charles Dexter Ward is next. But first I'm going to do something, uh, do something, just take care of a little bit of business here uh, first. There are three short pieces, fragments, some of them almost, three short pieces that I, I want to deal with. Um, I also got to deal with the Roman dream. I can't forget that. Uh, I think I'll do that after Dunwich Horror. I'll go back and deal with the Roman dream as a story. But I got three short pieces that don't really deserve an episode of their own, but should be talked about um, in, the, in the interest of being complete. So it's The Descendants, which is a, a fragment, Ibid, which is kind of a joke about footnotes, and The History of the Necronomicon. So the next episode will be a short glimpse at these three works. Um, you know, we kind of already talked about the history of the Necronomicon, I think, uh, partially in other podcasts. Ibid, I, I haven't mentioned before, and the Descendants, I haven't mentioned before. So we'll see what's in these stories, in these fragments. Um, you know, except Ibid was published separately. History of the Nom Necronomicon, I think, was originally published in a letter, or, or not published, but written in the letter, and later on published. Descendants was just a fragment that didn't get published till after he died. So we'll do those three. Uh, then we'll do Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Uh, five episodes probably. We could probably do Color Out of Space and Dunwich Horror in three or four episodes. Uh, and then I'll do The Roman Dream. So that will bring us to the end of this set of stories. So um, that's what's coming up. I hope you'll stick with me as I go through um, these little fragments and then get to what's my favorite story by by Lovecraft, probably. I think sometimes it changes, but usually, if I really sit down and think about it, my favorite story by far, I think the, the linchpin of all his work, even more so than Horror at Red Hook, is the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Um, I can't tell you how much I love that story, and I'm really excited to get into it. Um, it'll be about two weeks of podcasts on that story alone. So, uh, yeah, thanks for... Uh, sticking with me as I get to this uh, story that I'm really excited to talk about. Um, but if you have anything to add about the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, let me know what uh, that may be. I'm sure there's a lot I didn't even scratch the surface of. It's such a thick, rich text. Um, but, but that means there's a lot for you to add. So send me your emails, leave your comments below, and I will hopefully respond to them. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time with a, a few fragmentary pieces that are important, but sometimes overlooked by, by readers. See you then.